I bring you warm greetings from your brothers and sisters over just the other side of 35 by McNeil High School, Cross Point Church, Presbyterian Church. Uh, and I bring you warm greetings from our friend Rick Box, who I think has been here with you all not too long ago. Rick is one of the, we have a few retired pastors in our congregation and we're grateful, uh, very grateful for him. Well, I was honored when Bob called Tuesday and asked if I would be able to help out to fill the pulpit tonight in light of uh, the things that he's experiencing. I met Bob, I think, probably six or seven years ago. We became friends and we meet for coffee periodically. And uh, some of you that are, are here, I've actually seen you having coffee with him and, uh, and gotten to, getting to meet you. Well, at times in life, we can all hit those points where we experience a crisis of faith, a crisis of faith that reminds us uh, of our need to rest and wait and trust in the Lord. But if we're honest in our hearts during those times when it's a crisis of faith, it can be easy to look around us and find ourselves fearful or discouraged. This evening, I would like for us to look at one of my favorite psalms. Uh, Psalm 103 is my favorite, Psalm 23, and then Psalm 73, because I feel like uh, this psalm reminds me so often of where I need to to take my heart, especially in, in days like these when it's easy to look around and it seems like things are difficult and it's hard. And if I were to describe it, it, I would have to say it seems like the wicked are winning. And yet I have to remind myself that the Lord is on his throne. And in this psalm, the, the psalmist Asaph expresses some doubt and some fear, both of which result from looking to the wrong things and to the wrong people and not ultimately looking to the Lord. And so we need to ask ourselves, when we find ourselves in those times of doubt or fearfulness, we need to ask ourselves, where am I looking? To whom am I looking? I love what one pastor writes when he says, doubt happens when the superficialities of our faith meet the realities of the world. When the superficiality of my faith meets the realities of the world. And the psalmist uh, will tell us that the biggest issue uh, is with the superficiality of our faith and not the superficiality of our Savior or of our God. The problem lies with us. Because God is always at work. He is always at work, no matter my circumstances or what's going on in my life. The sovereign God is at work in me and around me. And I've got to remind myself of that. And so this evening, as we look at Psalm 73, let's turn there now. And uh, we'll read Psalm 73 together, and uh, we'll read the whole thing, but we'll focus on a, a couple sections in particular. This is the word of the Lord to us, a psalm of Asaph. Truly God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. But as for me, my feet had almost stumbled, my steps had nearly slipped, for I was envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. For they have no pangs until death. Their bodies are fat and sleek. They are not in trouble as others are, nor are they stricken like the rest of mankind. Therefore, pride is their necklace. Violence covers them as a garment. Their eyes swell out through fatness. Their hearts overflow with follies. They scoff and speak with malice. Loftily, they threaten oppression. They set their mouths against the heavens and their tongue struts through the earth. Therefore his people turn back to them and find no fault in them. And they say, how can God know? Is there knowledge with the Most High? Behold, these are the wicked. Always at ease they increase in riches. 
All in vain have I kept my heart clean and washed my hands in innocence. For all day long I have been stricken and rebuked every morning. If I had said, I will speak thus, I would have betrayed the generation of your children. But when I thought how to understand this, it seemed to me as a wearisome task. Until I went into the sanctuary of God, then I discerned their end. Truly you set them in slippery places. You make them to fall to ruin. How they are destroyed in a moment, swept away utterly by terrors. Like a dream when one awakes, O Lord, when you rouse yourself, you despise them as phantoms. When my soul was embittered, when I was pricked in my heart, I was brutish and ignorant. I was like a beast toward you. Nevertheless, I am continually with you. You hold my right hand. You guide me with your counsel, and afterward you will receive me to glory. Whom have I in heaven but you? And there is nothing on earth that I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. For behold, those who are far off from you shall perish. You put an end to everyone who is unfaithful to you. But for me, it is good to be near God. I have made the Lord God my refuge that I may tell of all your works. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, this evening, would you use your word, Father, in our hearts to do through your spirit what only it can do to convict us, to encourage us, to comfort us, to discipline us and train us. And Father, would we see your goodness, the beauty of Christ in all that you have done for us as we look at this this evening. And would you cause us to love you more and to trust you more deeply. We ask and we pray in Christ's name. Amen. Well, in Psalm 1, it tells us, uh, in Psalm 73 and verse 1, it says it's a psalm of Asaph. Asaph is one of the priestly family. He's uh, probably one who writes hymns and might even sing hymns in, God's, uh, in the temple and the worship of God's people. And he's there, and he begins with this statement, Surely God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. Every time I read that verse, I picture Asaph writing and making the statement as a declaration. Surely God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. But just as quickly I hear Asaph reminding his own heart that this is true. Much like Psalm 103 says, bless the Lord, O my soul. Where the writer is telling himself, you need to bless the Lord. Because we can often be forgetful. And we see that. Surely God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. But we see him in verse 2 saying, but as for me... As for me, my feet almost stumbled, my steps nearly slipped. Well, what caused him to stumble? Well, God in his kindness tells us in verse 3 what Asaph writes. He reveals the cause of his doubt. He says, I was envious of the the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. I was envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. Envy is defined as a feeling of discontent or covetousness with regard to another's advantages, successes, and possessions. It's a sense of discontent or covetousness with regard to another person's advantages or success success or possessions. It's exactly what he describes here. He says, I'm looking around at the world around me and it seems like the wicked are winning. They've got it much better than I do at times, it seems like. 
One commentator I was reading noted so convictingly that envy, envy is a horizontal expression of a vertical problem. Envy is a horizontal expression of a vertical problem. You see, when we doubt God's goodness between us and God, we begin to envy our neighbor or look down on or look better upon our neighbor depending on what's going on. It's not anything new. I think it's what got our first parents in the garden. As they were there in the perfect garden God created, he says, you can eat from any tree in here you want. Here's the, let's say, thousands of trees, but just don't eat of this one. And I almost picture an Adam and Eve thinking, we got all these trees, it's pretty good, but what is he holding out on us to tell us we can't have that one? And it begins to creep in. Parents, you know what this is like if you have children and you give them each a cookie. I have a brother who's two years older than I am. My mom would give us each a cookie. We would take the cookie, but we immediately begin to look. Did he get a bigger one than I did? Did he get the bigger part than I got? And the, it starts very early on. So I would ask today, who or what are the things that you can find yourself envying as you look around at those around you? Or, more properly stated, what are the circumstances in your life that are causing you to doubt God's goodness? To doubt whether he's really going to take care of me or really going to provide for me. And notice who the psalmist is envying. I saw the prosperity of the wicked. It's not that he's just looking out on the congregation of his brothers and sisters, but he says, I saw the prosperity of the wicked and I began to honor or begin to envy them. One author writes, he gives us some modern context to this section, and I think it's a very good description. He said, verse 4, they have no struggles and their body are healthy and strong. He said, they're beautiful. They get the front row seats at the game and they fly first class. They're free from common uh, human burdens. They have house cleaners, they have personal assistants, they wear designer clothes, their kids go to school on scholarship, and they get the great jobs. Therefore, pride is their necklace. What's really galling is that they take credit for all they have and for the reasons that, of their success, as if all they have is because they're more awesome than the rest of us. They seem oblivious to the fact that their prosperity is mainly due to being born in a rich family. They clothe themselves with violence. He writes, their pride makes them hateful and disdainful towards others. They really think they're better than everyone else and that they deserve all the perks and the privileges. The truth is the wicked don't really see a need for God at all. And John Calvin in his commentary on this passage writes, When the ungodly get ahead by dishonest dealings and they experience little to no negative circumstance or consequence, they begin to think and live as if they answered to no one at all. We see that. We see it in our world, but we can see it in us. When we, they begin to live in their dishonesty and dealings, they experience no negative circumstances, they think, well, I'm good. What was I worried about? While it's easy for us to look at the ungodly in this passage and see the emptiness of our ways, the psalmist notes our tendencies. We can often be the ones who begin to become envious of the wicked in their prosperity. It can happen to God's people. How about you? When things don't go well in life, 
or when things do go well in life, do you begin as your first response to begin to pat yourself on the back and think, man, I've done pretty good. It might even be a little bit of spiritually you felt like I've done really good in getting myself where I am and you pat yourself on the back for your hard work and ingenuity. Or do you stop regularly and acknowledge that all you have, every benefit and every privilege you have is a gift from God who loves you deeply and it's all a work of his grace. I love what one author noted. He said that every human society that's ever existed Whether it's a nation, a race of people, a church, a basketball team, or a group of eighth grade kids has been characterized by pride at the top and envy at the bottom. Those who might have gotten a little bit of a head can begin to boast and begin to think well of themselves. And we've got to be honest, this is true of us as Christians. We can at times look around at our world and think, well, we are living the life that God calls us to live, i.e., we're better. And you see, that misses the gospel of grace because we think we've done it by some work and sheer effort on our part rather than realizing it's all his grace. Verses 10 and 11 can seem a little bit unclear because it talks about his people returning to their places and the waters of abundance are drunk by them. What does he mean by his people? Well, several commentaries that are conservative commentaries I looked at said this could be a reference to God's people actually looking to the ungodly around them and beginning to think they have it pretty well and we can begin to go to their cisterns, the places they look for success or happiness or contentment, and we can begin to drink those same waters. To sink satisfaction in those places ultimately apart from Jesus. Do you hear the echoes of the warnings from Psalm 1? Do you remember Psalm 1? Blessed is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked, nor stand in the path of sinners, nor sit in the seat of scoffers. You see, we can begin to walk with them, and before we know we're walking with them, we're standing with them, and then before long we're sitting down, we've just taken up company with them. And I'm not talking about in an evangelistic sense, but I'm talking about in a sense where we begin to want the same things they want. Living not distinctly because of Christ, but living for the things of this world. We know what this is like. We see the increase of the wicked and it seems so easy. And we observe they seem to have no negative consequences. And yet we begin to struggle, asking ourselves like Asaph did, Surely in vain I've kept my hands pure. Has it been worth it for me to to continue to try to walk with the Lord in the midst of these difficult circumstances when when I look at everybody around me? They seem to have it much better than I do. They don't seem to struggle like I do, or at least I'm going to assume, I'll go and tell you, I struggle. My family, we struggle at times. I have four children. Uh, I have a great wife. We've been married 35 years. But my four children, we have, we have our oldest and our youngest have some special needs. I have a daughter who's on the autism spectrum and I have a son who's got a genetic disorder that just makes school, made school and life hard. And it's tough sometimes to just remember, you know, God is good to Israel. He is good. He has blessed us. Because we can look around and I can say, my friends, they don't even honor Jesus. And their kids got scholarships. Life is easy for them. Lord, what have I done wrong? It's the old joke you've heard. Lord, if this is the way you treat your people, right? You know, why do you, there's, there's a reason you might not have more people. Well, that's not it. But we can begin to drink those same waters. We see, when we see the increase of the wicked. Then you look at verses 16, 13 to 16, where I just mentioned, 
Surely in vain I've kept my heart pure and washed my hands in innocence. For I've been stricken all day long and chastened every morning. He's asking, has it been worth it to honor the Lord? And then he says in verse 15, if I speak thus, I would have betrayed the generation of the children. There's something to me striking uh, about verse 15. Because it's like he catches himself in the midst of saying, if I had said these words, if I had spoken thus, and I think for me it's one of the benefits of, uh, of us as we gather as God's people of praying out loud or of writing your own prayers. Or even when I'm by myself in my car, sometimes people think I'm on the Bluetooth. Thankfully I have an excuse now. Uh, but if I'm just praying out loud and talking to the Lord where I write my prayers down. Because he said, if I had said that, I would have betrayed the, the gen- next generation. But there's something about verbalizing those things that helps us. Tim Keller in his book, The Songs of Jesus, makes a wonderful point. He said, this is one of the values of praying out loud or writing your prayers out. It can help you grasp what you're thinking in your heart. Have you ever said something and then you said it, you said, I can't believe those words came out of my mouth. There's something about just when it's verbalized that it actually becomes real for us. And the psalmist is almost like he's stopped in his tracks when he, to use the expression my mom used to use before speaking to someone, she said, you need to taste your words. Before you're just speaking out to someone, she goes, you need to taste your words. Think about what you're going to say. And the psalmist says, when I began to, in a sense, taste my words, I could see what was going on. He realizes that, no, it wasn't useless to serve the Lord. And then he tells us that uh, in, verse, uh, the, in the following verse, what really took place, we'll see it in verse 16, um, or verse, uh, uh, excuse me. When I came to the sanctuary of God, and I'm, I'm totally missing my verse here. Oh, in verse 17, he'll tell us. But in that verse 15, he, he points us to this. You see, discontent with the Lord's provision and doubting his goodness drove him to envy. It drove him to envy. Doubting God's goodness never leads you to joy. Never leads to joy. I read an illustration of a, a, one commentator saying, if you have an uncle that you didn't even know existed. And this uncle that you didn't know even existed leaves you a large inheritance. And you're called to the bank to get the inheritance. And you're in your car and you get a half a mile from the bank and your car breaks down. He asks, do you stop, get out of your car, and shake your fist at the Lord and look with envy at everyone else's car? He says, no. You skip to the bank. That half-mile walk will be the most joyous walk you ever took. You see, for the believer, our walk of faith, fraught with difficulty, can be the most joyous walk because we know what awaits us at the other end. And it will be here for us very soon. And it will be glorious. When Jesus returns for his people, it will be glorious. That's why Paul writes in Romans 8, 18, for I consider the sufferings of this present life, this present time, are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be. Can this life be hard? Yes. Is God faithful? Yes. Is it worth it to trust him and walk with him even in spite of the difficulty? Yes. As a friend of mine reminded me a number of years ago, he said, Steve, never doubt in the darkness what you know to be true in the light. 
Never doubt in the darkness what you know to be true in the light. What you know of the Lord, when it gets dark, don't doubt those things. But you know it's true. And verse 17 here is the turning point in our passage. He said, uh, all that was going around him, it was troublesome in his sight. Then he said, until I came into the sanctuary of God, then I perceived their end. Remember thinking about this years ago, thinking, how did coming into the sanctuary of God show him the end of the ungodly and the wicked around him? Could it have been that when he walked into the temple and he got into the outer court that the Gentiles were allowed to enter and there's the rope there that basically with signs on it says basically do not pass this point almost under penalty of death if you're a Gentile. Could that have been it? He realized that they can't go go in where I'm able. Could it have been that that showed him the, uh, the end of the wicked? Could it have been the sacrifices he was observing offered in the temple? Removing sin or realizing, you know what, the ungodly, theirs, theirs is, not be, is not being removed and atoned for. We don't know exactly, but we know that entering God's sanctuary with God's people and worshiping opened his eyes and he saw there's a distinct difference between the godly and the ungodly. And God is faithful to his children. You see, when we look at ourselves or our circumstances or the apparent successes of the ungodly around us, we're clearly looking in all the wrong places. We're not looking to the faithfulness of the Lord. We're looking to our circumstances. We're looking to people. We're looking to events to somehow provide us with contentment and joy. And the psalmist, with this newly gained perspective, reminds us and reminds himself that God isn't passive. His judgment will come. It will be just. And the ungodly will not come out on top. In verses 21 to 24, we see the absolute beauty and the promise of the gospel. He said, when my heart was embittered and pierced within, I was a beast before thee. Nevertheless, I'm continually with you. You have taken hold of my right hand. You counsel me. You guide me. And afterward, you receive me to glory. Brothers and sisters, that's the good news of the gospel. That even in the midst of our doubts, God is the one who's holding our right hand. And he is going to be the one who takes us and receives us in glory. That's grace. And that grace is the only antidote to envy and doubt. Understanding God's immense love for his people, what Jesus has done for us, for us. In the face of all of our circumstances, where do I look when life gets hard? I've got to look to the cross. Is, does God love me? Is he going to provide for me? Look to the cross. It's the greatest exclamation point that promises you, yes, God will take care of you. He tells us in Romans, if he didn't spare his only son, will he not along with him Freely give us all things? Jesus is the great exclamation point. And I love verses 25 and 28. They're the resounding doxology in this passage. In them we see a man who has found his utter satisfaction in God when he says, Whom have I in heaven but you? And besides thee I desire nothing on earth. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. That's the praise. So friends, Providence Church here in Pflugerville, can I encourage you, look to Jesus. I know you do. I know you look to Jesus. But can I encourage you as your brother and friend, look to Jesus. 
because there are going to be a lot of other things in this world that will clamor for your attention and say, here's where success can be found. Here's where satisfaction can be found. And they, were, they are liars. Only Jesus will. So stop looking to anything for him other than him for, for, uh, for joy. Stop looking for the next news cycle to give you some hope. Stop looking for the next election cycle, whoever wins or loses, to give you hope and satisfaction. It will never give it. I was telling my people this morning at our church, stop looking for the next great vacation that you're planning to go. That's what's going to give me the joy in life. It won't do it. Stop looking to all these things. Stop looking to your friends' uh, Facebook posts, Twitter posts, wherever you may look, uh, because all it is is filled with people who will only allow you to see a part of their life and it's always the best part of their life. And what happens is we begin to see the best part of their life. And I begin to go like, mine's terrible. Because I'm not looking to Jesus, but I'm looking other places. Jesus is the one who will carry us. Jesus is the one that will sustain us. Jesus is the one that offers us hope. Stop looking for heaven on earth. This isn't home. We're going home, but this isn't it. Fix your eyes on him. And look to him. And can I add? Do, continue to doing what you're doing tonight. Enter God's sanctuary with his people. Because it's there that there are people there that will remind you in times of difficulty. God is good. The Lord is on his throne. I, I was pastoring a church in Alabama. And our, my senior pastors at times we would often remind ourselves. Uh, the verse, the Lord is on his throne and his mercy rules over all. And I, we would say that verse can be said two different ways. One is the Lord is on his throne and his mercy rules over all with resounding confidence. At other times we'd say the Lord's on his throne and his mercy rules over all. Just doesn't seem like it in our world. But he is. He is ruling and he is reigning and he is good. And he's going to care for his people. It's true for you as a church, and we, I pray for your pastor. We, at our church, we often have in a segment of our, the pastoral prayer, it's traditionally been called, we'll pray for churches in our area that are seeking to proclaim the gospel of grace. And we pray for Providence Church, that the Lord would work. It would continue to give you a greater desire for him. and would bring people here that want to know him and need him so desperately. So we pray for you. We pray for your pastor and, uh, and pray for you all in the midst of this time where it's just hard. And uh, praying that the Lord would be watching over him and caring for him as well. Thank you all for, for loving him. Well, no matter where you are this evening, the key to this passage is to realize that trusting in Jesus, walking with him, is worth it. Don't try to figure out why is this going on in my life? Why is the wrong question? The right question to ask is, Lord, what? What is it you're wanting to do in me and in my life in the midst of these circumstances? And don't try to figure it out, just trust him and hold on to you. Because as the psalmist reminds us, you're holding on to me. And you will receive me to glory. And the end of this passage is so perfect. What's the result of seeing the nearness of God? He says, but as for me, it's good to be near God. I have made the Lord God my refuge. Why? That I may tell of all your works. Friends, may we be those who boast in the greatness of our God and his mercy and his kindness to us so that others may hear. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, this evening we thank you. We thank you for the words of this psalm.
Because, Father, the, the psalmist Asaph expresses what we can often feel in our hearts but sometimes don't want to verbalize. That we can look at those around us and we think they've got it better than we do. Father, we confess that that, take, that happens when we don't look to you. But when we're looking at our circumstances or those around us, please forgive us. Jesus, would you help us this week to look to you in all that we do to trust and rest in you so that we would be able to say, surely God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. And may we say with the psalmist, Father, my flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. You're all that we need. Father, I pray this for my brothers and sisters here. Father, we pray for for Pastor Bob, that you would continue to give him strength and healing, give the doctors wisdom. Father, thank you for this time we have to gather to worship you. We pray all of these things in the strong name of Jesus, our brother, our redeemer, and our friend. Amen.